You are now listening to episode 62 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. My name is Brian Davis, and this is my show. Here I'm interviewing William Lagakis, Ph.D. He has a fantastic book called The Poor Misunderstood Calorie. You can find a link to the book in the show notes. You can find William on Twitter. He is at Calories Proper. He has an excellent Twitter account. Fantastic blog called Calories Proper. I'm really happy with this interview. And I was um, really thrilled to have William on because, well, I the book's just, I think it's important and uh, really fantastic and a great read. Yeah, it's a really strange kind of subject, calories. Um, but he does such an excellent job over the 300-so pages clearing all this confusion. So there's that. You know, I had said I wasn't going to do any more commercials. Well, commercials for affiliates, let's say. I have an actual show sponsor now. It's a bit of an experiment. We'll see how it goes. See what kind of results we can generate. This company is called Koyono. Koyono.com. K-O-Y-O-N-O. Koyono offers slim wallets, bags, compact backpacks, travel coats, jackets, shirts, pants, and other minimalist accessories. Really cool stuff. You know, it's it these are luxury items for the minimalist lifestyle. And they're gracious enough to offer my listeners a discount at checkout. And that code is sushi15. Just all caps SU I'm not going to spell it sushi. All caps sushi the number is 15. Sushi15 at checkout for 15% off your purchase. I don't know that they've ever offered a discount like this before, so I'm really grateful, and it's just awesome. Let's drum up some business for them and help support the show. And here's the show. State your name for the record. Bill Lagakis. Lagakis? Yes. Okay. I had it wrong, but I was close. Okay. That's I a... thought it was Lagakis with the accent on the L.A. That's pretty close. Is that Greek? Yes. But you're not all Spartan, right? Correct. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm half Irish, but you would never know if I look half. Half Irish? Yeah. Ah. Wine and whiskey, or just the wine? Both. Yeah. Wine and whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Any, uh, anything comparable to 
what is it, resveratrol in um, whiskey? Hmm, good question. I don't know. Now, whiskey comes from, from corn. That's corn-based? I think so. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Yuck. <laughs> I think I found you on Twitter. Yes. Um, I don't even know how you popped up or whatever. But um created I've been waiting for the firestorm to happen. About um well, because of your book. Oh yeah. The poor misunderstood calorie. Yeah. And we got a little bit of action on Twitter. Mm-hmm. A lot of people like to argue about calories. Yeah. What's it's... the how could there be an argument? Well, I don't know. I mean, there seems to be that the calories in, calories out school that says, you know, you can eat whatever you want as long as it's under a certain number of calories and you can lose weight. And if you overeat calories. Right. Then you'll definitely, you know, that's what causes obesity. And this is untrue? I don't, I don't like that philosophy. You just I don't like the whole argument is just kind of difficult, symbolic. right? Yeah, symbolic in my opinion. So what has been your approach in um, trying to explain this? The reason why I don't like it is because it's sort of like you can't really know you're in calorie balance until it's too late. Like, if you, you don't wake up on Wednesday and say, okay, I'm in positive energy balance, so if I weigh myself on Saturday, then I'm going to be heavier. It's really like the other way around. You weigh yourself on Saturday, and if you're heavier, then you can know whether or not you were, then you can know that you were in positive energy balance that week. Yeah, so, so it's, too, it's too late. So we have this thing called energy balance that you use repeatedly. Uh, I wasn't really that familiar with the term. It sounds like some mystic woo kind of thing, but you're actually talking scientific, hardcore numbers? Yeah. Uh, basically, if you're weight-stable, then you're in energy balance. You actually say in the book that the bathroom scale is an excellent measuring tool for energy balance. Yes. I, I think that because that, that gives you a number. You know, week to week, you're going to get a good number that's infinitely more reliable than reading the calorie information on packaged foods or, you know, calorie labels at restaurants. I think they're all pretty much notoriously inaccurate. The bathroom scale is the arch enemy of most uh, diet gurus or anti-guru diet gurus. You know, they tell you to ditch the scale and let it all go. and But... As a measuring tool, it's pretty darn handy. They're cheap, I, I, and you great. say they're accurate, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. If you just use the same scale, and there's going to be some, you know, minor differences in water weight from day to day. But it, it, you know, use the scale and, and your mirror, and if it comes back consistent, you know, you were in energy balance. But then that also brings up another point of body composition which I think is infinitely more important than just looking at body weight. Like whether you're 
how's your uh, body composition in terms of muscle mass versus fat mass? Of course, that goes. And composition, this is... Um... Which can all happen, you know, you can be in energy balance, but have changes in body composition, which sort of makes energy balance irrelevant. If you stay at the same body weight, but you're improving your uh, lean mass composition. Because we have uh, two different ways to store fat. Right, and they're relatively safe, uh, safer, subcutaneous glucose for the uh, the notoriously nefarious uh, visceral region, like around your stomach and around your organs. Yeah, we can't really see it around our organs, can we? Or unless it gets really bad. Yeah, not really. I mean, you, you will have the the guy with the the big beer belly with the thirty two inch waist. You can probably say that they do have a good deal of visceral fat stored in there but besides that you can have a lean person that is termed metabolically obese which is largely driven by excess visceral fat storage but you might not be able to see that so what is it that is so sorely misunderstood about the calorie itself you know I don't I don't think the calories like magically disappear or there's some that you know there's these violations of laws of physics or anything. I just think that different calories act differently in your body. The, the way that they're metabolized, uh, your body will tend to store more fat if you eat certain types of calories or certain foods. Whereas if you just say you ate 2,000 calories, it's not really going to tell you much about the metabolism of the calorie. I think the metabolism is more important to health outcomes As some people have pointed out, I wanted to get your opinion on this. Do calories act differently in different bodies? Sure. Wait. Hmm. So like me versus you eating the same meal? Right. Uh, Yes. I I think there's uh, an emerging, well not really emerging, but interesting differences in sort of metabolic flexibility, whereas some person, if somebody is you know, obese with insulin resistance, they're not going to be able to adapt to certain diets as well as somebody who is uh, lean and active, for example. So it's basically when somebody, somebody eats a high-carbohydrate meal, their body should be able to respond to that by basically metabolizing all the carbohydrates by shutting down fat oxidation, turning on glucose oxidation, and uh, clearing all the blood glucose. People with impaired metabolic flexibility seem to not be able to do that so well, which ends up leading to hyperglycemia, and that has downstream effects on entity organ damage. If it happens for too long, then you start getting the diabetic complications. And does just correcting energy balance help fix this? I don't think so. Well, if, if somebody loses a substantial amount of weight, regardless of whether it's counting calories or whatever technique they're using, I think that their metabolic flexibility should improve. So with regard to just technically energy balance, it could be applied that way. But I also think, you know, the food beaten, the diet followed, will play a big role. So, 
the types of calories mean a lot. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm a big proponent of uh, calories, not calories like the number as a unit of heat, but sort of what form are they taking? Is it what type of diet, what type of food? And so what you're a proponent of are these um, high-density high slash low-carb yeah. calories? I think that's a, a very healthy diet, a very healthy lifestyle. And when you, I mean, I also like to paint with broad brush strokes. Like, for example, if you hook somebody and put them on a low-carbohydrate diet, you're in one foul swoop just removing a lot of junk food, a lot of empty calories. Most most junk food and empty calories are carbohydrate-rich food. That makes sense. It's just that um, in the community, <laughs> low-carb community, things get all wonky. People just, it's there's such vitriol out there about carb carb types, food quality and all these issues this is where a lot of the arguments come from um someone had said to me that um about energy balance that the human body is not a closed system and i had no idea what they could mean by that any thoughts on that yeah i mean i do agree with that you know, we're exchanging gases and heat with the environment. So we're not sort of this closed oven where, you know, you put in a certain, like there's this concept of the calorimeter where you can put a food into the small oven and ignite it with electrocution and measure the heat produced. And that's pretty accurate, but that's sort of more of a closed system. It, and human, humans were just far more dynamic we're exchanging a lot of things with the environment, so we'd be in open system. I mean, that's that's sort of like when people are getting into the, the technicalities of like arguments about physics. Yeah, and one of the things you point out is that um, although we're not the, a closed system, and but, but there's one issue that we do have is that we're not kind of honoring the evolution of humans. We don't have the um, appropriate stresses in our lives where we're not running from yeah. things, chasing down things yeah. as a whole. I know there's a large community of people who really actively pursue, you know, excellence and physicality and things, but for the most part, that, that system's kind of broken and you even say in the book, I, it was made me laugh about, you know, I made a tweet about, it's kind of like we broke evolution. Yeah. And, and now the, our cortisol system is, is damaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're well wired for, for fight or flight, but we pretty much do neither on a regular basis. So we don't have these, we don't have to fight to get our food and we don't have periods of starvation. But, you know, we have exactly the opposite. We can live a sedentary lifestyle and have all the junk food brought right to our door. Yeah, and so then even when we do uh, lower the caloric intake, 
we can kind of uh, make a mess of ourselves because the body then thinks it could be starving yeah. and then store fat. And that's another big component. I mean, I talk about this a lot in the book, and I, I believe this is true, that the variations in, in metabolic rate is important. It's an important thing to consider. And you could, somebody who's burning 2,000 calories a day can try and eat 1,800 calories a day, but it's only a matter of time before their metabolic rate slows down to 1,700, and now they're in a energy surplus and they're gaining weight. Yeah, so when someone enters a new diet, they may quickly lose some weight, some water weight, some other things. Mm-hmm. Then things could change. You could plateau or even go backwards. Absolutely. Even with this, you know, uh, caloric restriction, mm-hmm. weight gain, fat gain is still possible. Yes, it is. And that just depends on how your metabolic rate goes. That's another, one of the other reasons why I'm sort of a proponent of the uh, low-carb, high-fat diet because there's been a couple of good uh, diet studies that show when people lose weight with that dietary strategy, their, their energy expenditure, of course, it'll go down a little bit, but it takes the least hit compared to other high-glycemic diets or high-carb, low-fat diets. So studies repeatedly show low-carbohydrate would be preferable to most to most of the diets that are out there? Yeah. I mean, and what I'm saying preferable, it's not like it's this miracle thing where it's, you know, 500 extra calories are burned per day. It's much smaller differences, maybe along the lines of 100 calories or so. But it, I think it makes a difference. You kind of subscribe to the Taub's hypothesis or theory of... Um, it could be just minuscule amounts of calories over a long period of time that cause this obesity or metabolic derangement. Sure, sure. I like the I like the phrase. I don't know where I, where it came from, but obesity doesn't happen overnight. Right. I <clears throat> I really love that, and I strongly believe it. And that's why I I'm kind of a, a bit of a food Nazi with my children. Because I, I don't know, it, there's just um, there's just too many evils out there, and so oh. I I really kind of try to uh, keep it tight <laughs> for them. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's a very important time period. Because, like you're saying, they're not going to be fat on Saturday. You know, right. it's right. and I'm not worried about fat. I, I want to be clear. I'm not. Um, I don't need my kids to be skinny lanky or whatever and i'm not demonizing fat kids or anything but i'm talking about for pure long-term health right i mean you can you can be uh, there's a lot of terms like skinny fat or metabolically obese and these people can be by all intents and purposes you can look at them and say well that person looks lean but if they are having sort of the visceral fat deposition they can have sort of what would appear on a, on a, a lipid panel or something or a blood, blood profile. They could be showing signs of hypothemia and insulin resistance despite having a lean frame. So it's sort of health on the inside. So how did you get into this? 
don't know. I, I started studying nutrition in college. I was just very interested. I mean, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and other podcasts, and I know a lot of great uh, nutrition writers who have these sort of long, heartfelt stories where they overcame great health obstacles get to where they are, and they're, they're really cool stories, and it seems to be very inspiring. Uh, myself, I'm just interested in nutrition. I, I took a nutrition class, I think, my first year in college, and I really liked it. I thought it was interesting, and I pursued it against, against my uh, parents' advice. But I find the, the field interesting, uh, and metabolism just seems and you, you, can never, you never really get bored with it. There's always interesting angles to, to read about or to explore. So was the nutrition education you're receiving, what do you, you were, um, you're happy with where it started, or did you have to pursue your own studies to, to find some truths? I think I was lucky in that I had a lot of good teachers, and I wasn't really taking... The, like the dietitian classes, but the foundation was sort of biochemistry, endocrinology, metabolism. So we were learning about what happens to you know, nutrients inside the body. It wasn't really, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't exposed too much to the dogma of, you know, here's the American Heart Association recommendations. We just tell people to eat this. Instead, it was like, here is how this fat is metabolized. Here's how that fat, fat, is, fat is metabolized. I mean, of course, I was exposed to the to the larger issues, but I think I successfully avoided that dogma. Oh, lucky you! I hear a lot. <laughs> I hear a lot of complaints from people entering nutrition or mostly dietary school or nutrition school. You know that they just don't like what they're being told, and it's just basically the food plate. And right. why it's the optimal way to eat. Right. I don't know if this is true, but I, I heard someone, or I don't know if I've read, read it online, but the, the mission of the, uh, the food plate in the USDA in general is sort of to promote agriculture, not really to you know, design optimum health. I mean, I, I'm not a big believer in conspiracy theories or anything, but that, that sort of stuck with me. I've, from what I've read, I, I would, I would firmly believe that, that these recommendations are not for individual health, but they're for a, an economy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. And our economy's bollocks and yep. all the incentives are in the wrong place. So it doesn't help us. So what was your um your PhD? What was that all about? That was well, that was uh, intestinal lipid metabolism. My dissertation is online. I'm pretty sure you can just get it free online, but I, I don't recommend it. It's rather boring. I believe it's just a, a long long period of time, a lot of experiments looking at uh, fatty acid binding proteins on a cellular level. Not not really directly relevant to to dietary pattern but uh, I don't know the uh, one minute summary is fatty acids and lipids in general are not soluble in water but somehow they have to get around inside the cells of your body which is 
technically order. So I was looking at the proteins that sort of try and traffic these, these lipid molecules inside the cells, figure out what they did, how it happened. And then, you know, I, I, I'm interested in science. It's easy to get me excited about topics. So I, I didn't enjoy the science behind it. I'm sort of glad to be out of school. So what do you plan on doing? Or what are you doing? Right now, uh, I just finished up doing my postdoc in, uh, in San Diego studying inflammation, and diabetes, a lot of diabetes work, all animal stuff. But we were looking at, I did a lot of drug studies. Those studies were pretty interesting because it really, really hammered home the difference between obesity and insulin resistance and how the two components can be practically completely separated. I mean, we must have had 10 different mouse models and another five different drugs that you could just have a completely obese mouse but then be, have pristine insulin sensitivity, which is, I always thought was weird to still do. In a normal mouse or a genetically well, engineered there would, mouse? There, there would be some genetically engineered mice that would be lacking one or more sort of pro-inflammatory proteins. When you take away the inflammation, the uh, insulin resistance seems to cure itself. And alternatively, we did a couple of interesting drug studies where that were inhibiting one or more inflammatory components, and that would just restore insulin sensitivity in an otherwise you know, sick, obese mouse. And I think that's sort of one, one angle where big pharmaceutical companies are looking. I don't really like that option too much because, I mean, it does cure the health. It, or it cures at least one component of the health. The insulin resistance could be a nice avenue for, for diabetes in patients who can't, don't really do well on dietary intervention. But it, it's an interesting aspect. Yeah, so I can see a pharmaceutical advantage for someone who either can't or won't help themselves mm -hmm. but um unfortunately it just seems like the standard protocol now that we're just waiting for the miracle diabetes drug right when prevention seems like a pretty smart option oh yeah definitely. prevention and even dietary intervention is in my opinion superior i mean there are going to be patients where you need to where they're going to need to metformin I, I, there are some drugs that I don't like, like the thiazolidinedione, which seem to exacerbate weight gain, but also but, you know, they improve the glucose levels. And then there's insulin treatment, which I don't really like that very much at all. It's hard to just treat one component. Right. I mean, polypharmacy is what you see increasing numbers of patients on many, many pills. So it seems like in everything I read and uh, everything I've learned that inflammation is a, is a massive demon and then insulin resistance. These are the two quick focuses I think people need to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, inflammation, it's necessary. We do need it. Otherwise, you know, you'd, if we didn't have inflammation, you'd die from the common cold or you'd get a splinter and then need to have your hand amputated. But, you know, that that's, Sort of the other aspect of inflammation is just this subchronic 
high stress lifestyle, which seems to cause deteriorations in almost every organ in your body, leading to insulin resistance, arthritis, bursitis, any sort of tissue dysfunction can usually be traced back to one or more components of inflammation. So explain this insulin resistance. Okay. Insulin resistance will basically be like a metabolically inflexible person, somebody who is just cannot tolerate dietary carbohydrates. They, they ingest the carbohydrates, glucose goes into the bloodstream, glucose levels go too high, and they stay high for a prolonged period of time. And that's problematic because a lot of tissues in the body can't really handle that sort of exposure to hyperglycemia, especially prolonged hyperglycemia. And that's why insulin resistance is bad. And, and insulin resistance is not sort of the end state. That's, it can be reversed. It can be reversed by diet. It can be reversed by exercise. But it is one of the one of the bad guys. So, the, as you were saying, with inflammation, it is a necessary, natural process in the body. And then, when we get it out of alignment, it can create insulin resistance. I think so. I mean, the, from the animal work that I that I was doing, the opposite is clearly true. You can take a, a sick animal and either knock out one of the genes associated with inflammation and you can cure their insulin resistance or you can treat them with some anti-inflammatory drug and that can also treat, like, cure, essentially cure the insulin resistance. I'm not ready to say, actually I'm definitely not going to say that inflammation is the only cause of insulin resistance because there's a lot of big school of thought that says hyperinsulinemia or high insulin levels in and of themselves can cause insulin resistance. Like, for example, a, chron- a chronically high carbohydrate diet, which would lead to uh, high insulin levels being stimulated over and over again, that in itself could cause the insulin resistance. And there's also, I was just tweeting about this the other day, uh, some people think that environmental toxins can cause you to secrete just a little bit more insulin than you're supposed to with every carbohydrate meal, and that small excess of insulin can contribute to insulin resistance. It's, it, can, it can get kind of complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's just so much. there. I mean, but I'll tell you what. I was massively confused going in and then reading your book really helped it. If I saw this book on the shelf, I wouldn't pick it up. It's I, it just, you know, it wouldn't speak to me. I don't think. And, but it's a damn good book and it's a good read. Somehow you managed to put your entire, entire college education into a a readable book, which I I thank you for, you know, good work. Thank you. I I really, that that means a lot to me. I don't even know what to say. I really appreciate that. Well, having a little humor in there helps (laughs) a lot. And then one thing I'd say, you know, 
the book is for anyone interested in learning more about you know the the human animal you know human biochemistry and then if someone wants to get really deep then i'd recommend the blog your blog because then you've got all the graphs and all the studies and everything there Mm -hmm. and the book is the book has studies too and you know references and a lot of things but it's just readable Mm -hmm. you don't have to get bogged down in it which makes it well readable yeah, which I really enjoyed. So, I do have a question about the book. Did you self-publish this? Yes. That's amazing. How did you manage that? Well, that that was the sort of the default. I mean, I tried. I sent a couple letters to a couple of different publishers. I was in touch with a couple of people, and uh, they didn't want to pick it up. So I didn't really want to spend too much time on that. And after a couple of months, I just kind of just wanted to get it out. I didn't want it sitting on my conscience, sitting on my shoulders any longer. So I, I found this program through Amazon. They have a, this, I don't know, thing called Create Space. And, you know, it just took a couple of weeks going back and forth with them, going through the formatting and stuff, and then got it out there. That's, that's really cool. I'm kind of interested in, in publishing and how books get made and how they get picked up and how are sales? Sales are pretty good. I mean, well, since you started tweeting about it, sales went up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm got, sure. Two or three. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's doubling and tripling. There right you there. go. Wow. Yeah. Since the copy that my mom bought to the, <laughs> the others. I mean, whenever somebody comes out and writes a review about it on a different website, then sales will take a uh, go for a bump. That's all nice. I mean, I'm glad that people are reading it and liking it. That sort of that sort of means more to me than anything. I like the book. I think it's a pretty cool experiment to see how social networking can propel the sales of a book that may seem a bit obscure. You know, this is not uh, Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever that book is. Um, right. And when I went into this, I was a total new novice to social media. I mean, I, I didn't know how to sort of capitalize on it. Didn't know. You know, I think I wasn't even a member of Twitter then. So there are probably better ways to market a book. Yeah, sure, sure. It, you know, a lot of um, really successful books are written by really successful people <laughs> that right. just have major brands already in place, you know? That are business people that are, you know, genetically hustlers. Yeah, and then where you could land yourself on Dr. Oz or something, and then you get this massive spike. Mm-hmm. But um, I wish you, you know, a lot of success with this, and I hope a lot more people will read it. Thanks. Me too. Any troubles out there in uh, social networking? Anyone causing you any problems out there? Not so much. I haven't really gotten too much backlash I mean, I'm non-confrontational by my nature. I would rather, you know, discuss something if somebody thinks I'm wrong about something that could be right. Let's talk about it. Uh, but I haven't really experienced too much, too much backlash. Excellent. Yeah, I like your approach. You know, saying that. Well, if I'm wrong, let's talk about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably more happy than anyone to figure out why I'm wrong and how to remedy that. Have you gotten a call from Jimmy Moore yet? Yes. Have you been on? No. 
uh, scheduled me for a couple weeks from now. Excellent. Very excellent. That'll give you the exposure you deserve. Yeah, that'll, that'll be an interesting experience. Just get yourself a fancy microphone before then. Okay, I will. I They're will only like, do that. you can get one for 40 bucks. I'll send you some links. I appreciate that. <laughs> So I, you know, I really did have a lot of fun with the book and, um, you sent it to me and I really appreciate that. I kind of had this standing rule that I don't accept books because, um, the one, the first time I did from a diet author, uh, uh, a couple, I thought the book was horrible. Um, and it felt like all farmed content. It didn't seem like they were, it wasn't even their information. I, I really, and then of course they were expecting to be on the show and it was, it was a mess for me. So that's why I was a little nervous accepting the book from you, but um, you kind of reassured me that, no, just read it. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have no, no expectations. expectations. If you like it, good. If you don't, and you care to tell me why, that'd be cool. Yeah. And what was amazing was I couldn't stop tweeting it. I gave, all, I pretty much gave up full book report under the hashtag uh, TPMC. Yeah. That was good. It reminded me of some quotes that I, I didn't remember saying, but that was a nice experience. Yeah, I'm telling you, some of that stuff in there really made me laugh. Um, <laughs> it's just silly things. Like, they wouldn't... If I read it, it wouldn't sound funny, but in context, it was hilarious. <laughs> you know, this... Uh, what was the one, um, the laws of energy balance are not violatable or something? I don't know. Oh, yeah. The, 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 this, this phenomenon didn't violate the laws of energy balance. Right, right. But it's really impervious to violation. Right, right. <laughs> that was great. And then the stuff about cortisol and things was, was excellent as well. Cool. So let's tell uh, folks a few things. Um, overall that you cover that you think are really important topics and reasons to read the book? Okay. I think the focus needs to be away from calories and more towards foods. I mean, you could say, people can say, oh, well, we eat calories, and then there's just the equal argument, well, we eat food. And I think that the way different foods are metabolized is going to be a more important predictor on how it affects your health. My collective opinion is, you know, the high, the low carb, high fat diet is a very healthy way of eating. Of course, like athletes and stuff, they can definitely tolerate, as long as they don't have any underlying stomach issues, they're, they're not going to be sedentary people who need to really watch the carbohydrate intake, but they can probably tolerate higher levels. Protein intake is also something that varies widely. But, Focusing on the foods is important. Don't try to count calories. And if you're going to read diet studies and you see something where it says, you know, calorie restricted for ad libitum, bear in mind that in real life, you're going to be part of the ad libitum group. You know, you eat when you're hungry, you stop eating when you're no longer hungry. So if the ad libitum diet fed group seems to fare better in the study, that's probably more applicable to what would happen in real life. Yeah, that's a good point. It was one great thing that in the book you kind of um, walk us through studies 
why they were good, why they were bad, the strengths and weaknesses of certain studies. Um, that's a weak link for me. I never, how to, I never have known how to interpret a study. And you do a, a real good job of explaining some of the benefits and negatives of studies. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to deny these metabolic ward studies where they take they take patients or subjects into a hospital and really closely monitor every single thing that happens to them. That's great from a scientific perspective, but you want to base a diet recommendation off of what happened in that metabolic ward. You know, you can't only prescribe the diet. You have you also have to prescribe the metabolic ward because same thing's not going to happen in real life. Yeah, real life. Real life is the challenge, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And don't, I want another message, take on messages. Whenever you think about the, the calorie debate, don't forget about the other half of the calories, which is energy expenditure, which is metabolic rate, fidgeting, whether you're hot, cold, whether you're wearing a sweatshirt that's retaining heat, or whether you're in a t-shirt and you're cold and your body needs to produce more heat, that also can vary widely. That makes calorie counting sort of less reliable. Yeah, and, and you, as you point out all the time, calories are <clears throat> pretty much worthless information on boxes, containers, restaurant menus, those, you know, the handouts you get, say, if you go wherever, fast food or somewhere where they have all the caloric information, it's nearly useless info, isn't it? Yes, on multiple levels. One, it tells you nothing about the, the type of calories, what kind of food it is, and two, they're just notoriously inaccurate. I mean, study after study just shows... They can be off by 5%, they can be off by 40%. And on a 2,000-calorie diet, if something's off by 10%, 200 calories, that could be your entire calculated energy deficit right there. And you're getting off lucky if it's only 200 calories off. Yeah, I think that was something early in the book. I kind of forgot the exact, you know, the numbers or anything, but or maybe it was a tweet. But anyways, you were saying just, just a 10% mistake you extrapolate that over the course of a year and you could be in some big trouble. Oh yeah. Oh, it's smaller than that. So 1%. 1%. Yeah. If you're, if you're, if you count calories with 99% accuracy, you can fill it up, you know, 20 pounds, 20 pounds heavier over the next decade. And that's, and that sort of ties into the obesity doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. And that's amazing. You know, I've always wondered when I see people like I eat, 1800 calories today. I'm like, how the hell do you know? Yeah. I've never, I've, I mean, I can't even get, I wouldn't be able to guess within a thousand. There's no way. I have no idea. Well, one thing is I don't eat anything out of a box really. So right. there's no labels. You know, there's labels on the MCT oil and butter, things like that. But, and you know, people are like, oh, 50 grams of protein for breakfast. How the hell do you know? Like, right. Right. You can't weigh a steak and say how much protein it is. Yeah, I, started, you... I started following on Twitter this thing called, I think it's called Fit Plan or Fit Day. And people will tweet that, oh, I have 250 more calories to go before I reach my limit. And oh my God, there's no way that that could be remotely close to accurate. 
So it, there's there's so there's many reasons not to count calories. One, they're yeah. not countable. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and two, the calorie itself is not the important issue. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I don't have like one key sort of trick up my sleeve, one key argument that says this is the one reason why you shouldn't do it. I mean, it it just seems like there's basically no good reason to do it. All right. Oh yeah, here's something we got to cover. It seems you put a lot of importance on MCTs. Okay. Or am I just, or am I just saying that because I love that you? I happen to see you say that once. <laughs> a little bit of both. Okay. Yeah, well, this is definitely confirmation bias, but let's go over MCTs and uh, quickly, you know, what they are and what benefits they offer. Sure. I, I, I oftentimes interchange that with saturated fat because MCTs, they are metabolized differently than saturated fats, but they are technically mostly saturated fats. And the body seems to use them for energy. The ingestion of MCT oil itself, it sort of doesn't really have as many calories as fat is supposed to have because there's usually a little bit of a, a thermic effect. They sort of burn themselves off. And there's been a lot of good animal studies that show they're sort of, they protect the liver against a, a wide variety of insults. I mean, they're healthy. Whether it's sort of MCTs in the form of coconut oil, or there's, there's some MCTs in, in dairy fat as well. There, so there's a little bit in butter? A little bit, yeah. I think about 10% of the fat in butter MCTs. And so these, these MCTs are beneficial to the liver? Yes. I mean, and I say that because in these animal studies, I mean, when, when they want to test sort of an alcoholic fatty liver in an animal study, they really just take the water bottle and replace it with a bottle of vodka, essentially. And, and it seems like that the animals that are fed a diet with uh, enriched in MCT oil, they seem to experience very little, if any, the uh, metabolic arrangement that occurs in life being fed, for example, vegetable oils instead. In which case, sometimes the argument can be made that, you know, it's the vegetable oil that's causing the damage, that's causing the increased susceptibility. And I don't, I don't really know where the balance would fall there. I would say do both avoid the vegetable oils and increase saturated fat. For them. Mm-hmm. And then you, I saw you were kind of questioning why everyone were consuming MCTs in coffee. You know, bulletproof coffee? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Later. I, I think it's because most people had never even heard of MCTs until they heard about bulletproof coffee. That's possible, yeah. MCTs, that, they used to be, a long, long time ago, in the, in the realm of athletes, they thought it could improve hydration and improve, improve performance. It never really took off because I don't think it ever really did improve athletic performance but that doesn't mean you know they're they're worthless they have other health benefits yeah i know one way to find them in a store is find a um supplement store or a nutrition store usually they're just for bodybuilders (laughs) you see them on little pop-up shops you know corner stores that are supposedly nutrition shops but they're mostly it's just a, a place to buy fuel for bodybuilders and they always have MCT on the shelf. 
and I buy it and they look at me like, what the hell do you want this for? <laughs> I'm like skinny fat, you know, my yeah. arms look like twigs and everyone in there is yoked up. Just mm-hmm. even the 18 year old clerk looks like he's mm-hmm. <laughs> taking anabolic steroids, you know, it's like, what the hell are you doing with this? <laughs> Pour it in my coffee. Yeah, my coffee, and then they'd probably give you an even funnier look. Then, yeah, then, right. Well, I do like the idea of, I mean, if it offers some sort of palatability advantage, you know, there's, the people, like, there's a lot of dairy intolerance. And if you can't use cream in your coffee, by all means, use the MCPs. Yeah, just as an experiment, I changed all my butter into ghee. Oh, there you go. You get rid of the casein, too. Yeah, I did four pounds, you know, in my crock pot. And, um, oh, you made it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, cool. so I, I buy grass-fed butter local, and then I um, made my own ghee. But it's it's not as it, – it, it's definitely not as palatable that, you know, when you blend it, it doesn't, it doesn't work as well. What do you mean? In the coffee. Okay. Yeah, just – and I'm not trying to sell – the bulletproof coffee thing, but um, when you when you do use it that way, it's the ghee doesn't work as well. It's what? Yeah, it it doesn't. Yeah. Um, I'm not. I shouldn't say that it emulsifies because that's not accurate, but it does um, uh, homogenize in a way. Right. The particles really cream up, and with when you add the MCT, you get a nice like head of foam on there, and it, it actually works really really well. Then the ghee doesn't work as well, and I noticed no difference uh, in my body or mind or anything like that. But I just had an inclination that it would be healthier, and Doctor Cruz told me so. <laughs> he said the ghee. He told me to use the ghee, not skip the butter. Okay, is he against the casein? What's that? Is he against the casein? You know, I don't know if we covered the reasons. Um, it was just on that one of my earliest podcasts when I had him on. Um, he just said, you know, skip the butter or go for ghee. Okay. He's an interesting cat. Yeah. I was a yeah. huge fan of his, and now I'm just, I just steer clear because I don't know what's going on. So I just keep my distance. Yeah. I, I, I did follow a lot of his earlier stuff many, many years ago. And he did a lot of good people on lectin and appetite. He's an uh, outside-of-the-box thinker. Yeah, and we'll let it go at that. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, so you do cover leptin in the book. Um, it's very interesting. Yeah, I, I still think, I mean, to this day, what, 15 years after leptin's discovery, I still think it's a very mysterious, very interesting one. And I, I think that if once people figure it out, I, I think it's going to be important. But I, I don't think it's really been... We can't control it. We don't really know how to... How to. It's not like insulin where you sort of know the A to Z of insulin. And you know the A to B of weapon. So if someone doesn't know their hormone levels in their body, they don't, they can't afford testing or they're not going to do testing. Do we have like a hierarchical order of like, this will give you the greatest results tending towards, you know, like a, 
greater or lesser or lesser than lesser than lesser than scale like what's the first thing to focus on is it food quality energy balance or what food quality food quality definitely look at the food quality i mean again i like to paint with broad brush strokes you just get rid of the junk food i mean that's just an easy step foolproof and that'll you will see results uh, I'm not a huge, I'm not really a big fan of the glycemic index or, or choosing, some people say, well, you can still eat the high carbohydrate diet, but, you know, focus on complex carbohydrates. Uh, you might, that might be, the complex carbohydrates might have some sort of health benefits over compared to sugar in terms of like, metabolic effects, but the, the glycemic index never really fared so well in, in weight loss studies. So it might make you little bit healthier, but if your primary goal is sort of body composition or weight loss, you might not get so much mileage out of the uh, low glycemic index diet, which would be shifting towards more complex carbohydrates. So don't start there. Don't start there. Yeah. I mean, I, actually, I would say start with getting rid of all the junk food, trying the, the low-carb, high-fat diet, and then work your way back, work other foods back into your diet, depending on your Yeah, that's really great. You know, I see a lot of this from the, what I'm trying to make up a term for, these anti-guru diet gurus. Okay. They're telling people, you know, kill your guru. Um, and what they're doing is, these are people who usually had, they typically had some major metabolic derangement or whatever mm-hmm. the term is. They started eating good. They probably started paleo or some other plan, go into lifting and other awesome activities. And then they get super jacked and healthy and they're kicking ass. And then they tell everyone else, eat whatever you want. It worked for me. Okay. I see this a lot. And it's like, They've got the story backwards. You know, they're, they're not telling the story correctly. They, they've repaired themselves, and then, they've allowed, then they probably have some wiggle room. I like that a lot. And I, I, I'm a, I just said it to me just now, and I'm instantly on board. I think, that, I think I am understanding you correctly that once you've prepared yourself, then you can broaden your diet, then you can do a lot of things. Yeah, you know, you've nearly restored yourself to the health of a child, you know, like a really fully functioning kid. My kids could go on lollipops and pineapple for a, a month probably. Mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 you can do that, you know. They could probably just, well, hell, 80% of kids probably live on, you know, cereals, sugared yeah. cereals, and they look like they're fine, you know. Well, but, kids have the... Uh the distinct advantage of they're expending way more energy than we are just by growing. So even if, even when they're not playing, which they are most of the time, they're still growing. And there's no lean tissue, growth of bone, all that stuff. That's a huge energy demand. Right. And then I see this a lot with people that are lifting. They're, you know, especially like power lifting. They're really doing some work. Mm-hmm. And then they're telling everyone... Just eat whatever you want. You know, calories don't matter, but it's the wrong, it's the wrong message about calories don't matter. 
I do agree with that as well. Because they can, they're burning off anything that comes their way. Yeah, I mean, and, and they're, they're doing it during the exercise, but also more importantly, the other 23 hours a day, they're having the benefits of increased muscle mass, which is going to be driving up energy expenditure. So that they can be free with their own intake to a greater degree. And there's, man, there's so much awesome info in your book. Um, man, I, I would, I just implore anyone to check it out if they're at all interested in diet, health, and nutrition. I love the stuff you have in there about protein and that it's the massive importance of protein. Mm-hmm. For instance, you say if you're going to calorically restrict your diet, don't screw with the protein. Yeah, absolutely. And the, don't, not relative protein. You're eating 120 grams of protein or 100 grams of protein now, and you go on a calorie restricted diet. That absolute number should stay the same or go up. Now, right. It, it can't be a percentage of the calories. It's an absolute number that needs to be there. Right. Right. I for you to maintain lean muscle mass. Exactly. I think I knew that, but reading it and the way you told it the way you told the story in the book really set it in my mind. So I congratulate you on that. Very good. Thank you. I appreciate that. There's tons of gems in there and the whole work is, is awesome. So, um, the best place to find it is Amazon. Yes. And your blog is calories proper calories proper, man. I love that because that's a word I used to use like way (laughs) too much. I used to say everything proper this, proper that, eat proper, act proper. I I love the word proper. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, calories proper just really spoke to me. I love it. Cool. Awesome. I love your Twitter account. It's awesome. Your blog's a little bit over my head, but I still check it out. <laughs> okay. Okay. And uh but definitely do definitely keep that technical stuff in there. It's massively important. Because then you won't have to explain it later, right? Yeah, I, I like that idea of the blog. Uh, there's, there's a guy, the author of the, the four-hour work week. He said, make sure that every time you write an article on the blog, it can be, you know, it's not going to be dated. It's something that'll be good a year from now. And I like having the blog because if somebody wants to talk about a hormone glucagon or something, they say, oh, here I wrote this two years ago, and I can review it, and it's you know, still good information, and it's still, still relevant. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then you can compare it to as information changes or knowledge changes. Sure, absolutely. And it's still there as a great, great reference. So, yeah, excellent work on the blog. And uh, I love this uh, experimental, you know, marketing that you're on. Okay. So you've read the Tim Ferriss stuff? Yes. Yeah, he is one of those marketing gurus, I think. Yeah, it's a bit wonky. I've read all this stuff, but eh, whatever. Right. <laughs> Some people have to. Dis- I don't know. I don't know if there is a hustler gene. I didn't get it, but oh, I, I believe there is. Yeah. Right. I know a few. Yeah. I know some awesome ones and some despicable ones. So. Sure. Keep up the great work, man, and um, I, I I plugged the hell out of this book. I, you know, I love I, that. <laughs> I don't blog. I it's just not my thing. But I tweeted the shit out of it. It's so great, and I think it's really important. So, awesome! I appreciate that. Cool. I think we covered a lot. There's tons more. 
and uh, I hope we'll get some fans coming your way. Sure. I mean, if anybody has questions, I'm infinitely available. Tweet at me or email me. I'm happy to uh, address as many questions as we can. Yeah, cool. Maybe we can even uh, collect some and put them in the show notes or something as they come in. I know there were a few on Twitter and I didn't get time to get to them. So I feel bad about that. That's why I ask people not to ask me questions on Twitter because they just get buried so fast. I mean, I'd have to look back and it's, it's horrible. That's why I always send people to my contact page so I can keep this stuff organized. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I feel bad that some of this stuff got buried. Um, Maybe I could even just write to you with some of the questions and maybe we could do a little Q&A or something. Sure, I'm happy to do that. Cool, excellent. Thank you for your time, Bill. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me on. This is a great honor. Oh, wow. I don't know about that, but... <laughs> hey, Good luck on Jimmy's show, and I really I hope it brings you, um, you know, a lot of great fortune. Thanks. I appreciate that. All right. Good night. All right. Good night, Brian. All right. Bye. Now get on that computer and go to koyono.com. Pick up one of the slim wallets for yourself or for your mate. Um, they're legendary slim wallets. Fantastic quality. Many to choose from. And do not overlook the black coat. Superior outerwear. All right, K-O-Y-O-N-O dot com. And at checkout, enter the coupon code SUSHI15. All thanks. Goodbye now. For now.